You're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Do you want to speak with confidence and authority, have more influence, and get bigger and better results? Whether you're a top executive, an entrepreneur, or climbing the career ladder, this is the show for you. The leader who wants to inspire others and leave a lasting legacy. Now here's your host, world-renowned TEDx speaker, author, and executive communication coach, Dr. Laura Sokola. Welcome to the podcast, Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, your host, founder of Vocal Impact Productions and author of Speaking to Influence, Mastering Your Leadership Voice. My guest today is Dr. Bill Oxier, President and CEO of the Center for Rural Health Leadership. He is also an award-winning, best-selling author of books like Master of Success and To Lead, Follow. He's a former professor at the University of Maryland's their Graduate School of Cybersecurity and the MBA programs where he taught classes on leadership. And of course, he's also a proud husband and grandfather of five. Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you, Laura. Thanks for having me. So to kick us off, what's your fun fact? My, my fun fact, there's a lot of fun facts about me, but I'll, I'll go with uh, one of my favorite stories of when I spilled yogurt all over Charles Barkley. <laughs> which is a natural faux pas so many of us have experienced. Yes. Do tell us, please, how exactly you managed to spell yogurt all over Charles Barkley. Well, I was on a, a flight from Phoenix to Atlanta, Georgia, and I was sitting in first class. I had a window seat and the aisle seat was empty until right before takeoff. Somebody came and sat down, but I was so focused on my work. I wasn't paying attention who was sitting beside me. I could tell it was a large larger person and they had an iPad and they were watching basketball on their iPad with headphones. So I, okay, it's a larger person that likes basketball. And after we took off, I, I was looking around a little bit. I said, Oh my God, Charles Barkley's sitting beside <laughs> me. And so they served us breakfast and you know, those little uh, yogurt cups with the foil sure. lids, you know, you have to be careful when you Open those, but when I was trying to be careful and I opened it and yogurt splattered all over me and all over Charles Barkley. And Charles, I thought, oh my God, what have I just done? Charles just pulled his headphones down. We hadn't said a word to each other. And he kind of leans over and looks at me in the face and said, everything okay over there? (laughs) (laughs) And then we ended up having a great conversation after that, but uh, it, it all worked out okay. So there, I have to say that would be an icebreaker suggestion I have not come up with in the various recommendations I've made to clients. So I think I'll add that to item number 21, perhaps. Um, (laughs) Spill yogurt all over the person as a way to initiate conversation. It is unique and creative. Whether or not it'll endear you to them is another question, but it is unique and creative. So two points for you, Bill, on that basketball shot. It worked for that that time. (laughs) It certainly did. Got to be careful with those sealed containers when you're up yes. at 30,000 feet or so, pressure being what it is. Or note to self, yes. open outward as opposed to <laughs> open the, opening the side that's close to you. That might be yeah. the best tip of the day. People can just stop listening now because you're not going to get yeah. much better advice than that. <laughs> On an airplane, which side of a, of a pressure sealed container do you open? Little tips from leadership and influence. All right. So from there, let's go back to something a little bit more uh, well, expect it. How's that? Tell us about okay. your company and, or organization. What's your 30-second elevator pitch? Tell us about rural health. Yes, yeah, so I help rural health leaders become more effective leaders 
so they can create a culture of health and well-being in their communities and their rural hospital will not close. There's been an unprecedented amount of rural hospitals that have closed over the last few years, and it has a tremendous negative impact on the health and well-being of those communities, as well as the financial well-being of those communities. No, oh, of course. And you you think, of course, for all the challenges we have in more urban areas, rural health, can you give us like the top two or three major distinctions? What are the greatest challenges for health centers, hospitals or otherwise in really rural areas for those who hadn't really thought about it? Yeah, you know, everybody's heard about the workforce shortages in healthcare in general. That's always been an issue in rural health. And COVID just made it even worse. You know, recruiting great talent with the professional staff you need to come to rural and work in rural. So recruitment and retention is a key issue and leadership can truly make a difference there. Uh, Doing more with less is certainly big. And over 60 million Americans live in rural America, yet that population is poor, they're sicker, they're less educated, there's more chronic disease a lot of healthcare issues in general. And as we learned in COVID too, if somebody tells them they need to get vaccinated, that kind of makes them not want to get vaccinated. Mm. So there's a trust factor too. So it's, I guess it all boils down, you could say, to doing more with less because a lot of people feel like a small rural hospital is just a microscopic version of a large urban hospital, Mm. but they get compensated differently. So leadership truly does make the difference on a rural hospital's success because of those factors. And I would imagine that part of the challenge also is that here, I mean, I'm in Philadelphia, you throw a rock, you hit four hospitals, you know, there's one every three blocks in some areas. Uh, Slight exaggeration, but not Really, now that I think about (laughs) it. So literally within single digit blocks for sure. But there I would imagine certain people would have to travel an hour, two hours or longer to hit any sort of real medical provider. Exactly, exactly. And, and, you know, one of my uh, measuring tools to test how rural a community is, is how close is the nearest Walmart store? Mm. And and so when, when the closest Walmart store is an hour away, that tells you we're in a pretty rural area. And there's specific definitions and guidelines that go with defining what a rural hospital is or a rural health clinic is. And so that's part of the uniqueness that leadership has to deal with all the time is sorting through all those things. Yeah, I would imagine that. So I think we just, I wouldn't say debunk myths necessarily, but probably exposed a lot of things that people really never thought about before as far as healthcare in more rural areas. So with that, then, did you ever think that you've done a great job of explaining something only to have your audience or the listeners look at you kind of like a deer in the headlights? What do you think happened? What mistaken assumptions were made? What happened? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll never forget so I do a lot of public speaking as well. And and like you, I'm a podcaster. So uh, shameless plug here, my podcast is titled Rural Health Leadership Radio. And Rural Health Leadership Radio, I interview a different rural health leader each week. And the idea is to share best practices, to share lessons learned, what worked, what doesn't work. One of the issues that I didn't throw out a, a few minutes ago about rural health care is that you often feel isolated. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you're the CEO of a rural hospital, the next closest rural hospital CEO is in the, you know, maybe an hour's drive away or something, you know, so there's a lot of isolation. So it's sharing 
that information and breaking down some of those barriers that prevent the communication from taking place that, that would be normal. So that's part of what we do. So I went to a regional healthcare meeting that was focused on rural healthcare, and I made a presentation that was called What Rural Health Leaders Are Saying. So I, I chose some of the episodes from the podcast to share with the audience, some of, some of my favorite episodes, some that I thought there were some great lessons to learn from. And so one of the episodes that I focused on for this presentation involved a young woman who was a registered nurse who had grown up on a reservation. She was Native American. Her father was the president of the tribe that she was a member of, and she had gone away to school to become a nurse, and she thought she would never go back to the reservation, but she did, and she got involved in some wellness programs. And one of the problems on the reservation was there was nothing, in a very, very remote location, there was nothing for the kids to do, nothing for the teenagers to do. And because of that, guess what? They got into trouble, they, you know, drug use and, sure. and lots of other risky type behaviors where someone had the bright idea of starting an archery program. And so they started this archery program and uh, some of the kids ended up going to a competition and winning awards and medals for their marksmanship. You know, when they came back to the reservation, it was celebrated. And so I thought that was a, a great lesson of, you know, you can't make assumptions, you know, little things can make a huge impact that you might not think about when it comes to health and well-being. And so I shared that story. And in the evaluations that came back after that was the presentation was good, except for the racism the speaker demonstrated by equating bows and arrows to Native Americans. Mm. And they had totally <laughs> misinterpreted. Uh, the messaging I was trying to portray, because I mean, I was just sharing someone else's story. Yes. And so I learned that if you are going to share someone else's story, you need to make sure that you can do a better job of of sharing the true message to come across, because I, I was pretty taken aback by that, quite frankly. Yes. Uh, I mean, it's just one person saying that on an evaluation form. So I do have another friend that says, don't use bad math. If 500 people say you did a good job and one person says you didn't do a good job, okay, listen to the 500 that said you did. Sure. But I think there's still an opportunity to improve the messaging around something like that. And I think that's the balance. That's such an important point because, look, as a, you were a professor, I was a professor, you get student evaluations. And at the end of the semester, you can have 99% of the students think that you're the best thing ever to walk into the front of a classroom and one person will say you were the devil incarnate. Okay, did they give you an idea of why? What exactly did you do that made you Satan? That could be relevant because maybe there was an incident. Maybe there was something you didn't realize. And in case like if, if it was to use your example, something that was more racially based, maybe that was the only person who was of a particular ethnic background where they would have been the only person who were conscious or uncomfortable with a reference made, et cetera, if done the wrong way. So that would be why they would be the outlier or could, at least could be why. So we do need to look at those one in a hundred or however many, but at the same time, we can't, it's much easier for us often to fixate on that negative. It's like 99 people said you were great, but one person just didn't like you. Look, I look at my TED talk and for as many people as loved it, there are those who just want to find something to nitpick on. And in the beginning, I got really stuck on that, like the, where the criticisms came from. And to your point, you just, you can't get lost on those. But most importantly, I love what you said about 
taking it as an opportunity to look at where we can tighten up the messaging. What was it that could have been re-emphasized? What was it that could have been clarified just a little bit more, something explicit, you know, make sure, okay, this is, remember, please, this is just, I'm relaying their story. This is what someone else did. I'm not suggesting that if working with Native Americans, teach them to shoot bows. As well. Not <laughs> saying that, let's be right. clear. But then again, there are always going to be people who just are going to hear something else, no matter what we say. So finding that balance, giving ourselves grace, but always taking the opportunity to look to see where we can be better. So thank you for that incredibly important point of distinction. Now, is there a time when you have allowed yourself to be emotionally vulnerable with your team and how did it impact your relationship with them? Yeah, I think vulnerability is a key part of effective leadership. You know, one of the things that I do when I work with leaders, uh, I still do a lot of educating, even though I'm not officially a professor anymore at a university. I consider myself a professor with the classes that we teach uh, through the Center for Rural Health Leadership. And a big part of what we focus on, especially in the beginning, is knowing what your core values are and what your guiding principles are, why they are your core values, why are they your guiding principles. And everything you do, you want to make sure that you're living in alignment with what those core values are. So if honesty and transparency are two of your core values, but yet you're not allowing yourself to be vulnerable, I'm not sure how you make those go hand in hand. And what's the time when you had to make that distinction? I was fortunate to, when Steve Covey was alive, I was fortunate to go see him and meet him and uh, listen to a presentation he made. And at the time, I was the CEO of a surgical device manufacturing company. And I came back all fired up with some of his ideas and concepts. And so I created this bonus program for the manufacturing employees to make a few extra bucks. And problem is I made that decision in isolation. I didn't solicit any input because I was so fired up about Stephen Covey's words and the stories he had shared with me. And I was, I was very disappointed, to be quite frankly, how negatively this program was received. But then I realized I had screwed up because I did make this in isolation. And so I admitted to everyone, I'm sorry, I screwed up. I was trying to make this better. I came back from the seminar. I was, uh, wanted to do something that I thought was good for you. And I can see it's not been received that way. I apologize. I was wrong. And I know a lot of leaders that they always want to be right. And that opens a lot of press. So to just admit that you're wrong, it might some people, that might not be a big deal, but I think it's a very big deal, especially when you have a title that goes along with your leadership role, to admit that you're wrong and, and open yourself up to be vulnerable for that type of input and everything. I think it goes a long way to building a trust and a culture of connection that you want in your organization. Yes, I think so many people are afraid of admitting when they are wrong, especially as they get to the top because it's like showing you're imperfect and that can feed into imposter syndromes and fears of, are they going to say, I don't belong here if I'm making these kinds of mistakes? Should I have all the answers? But I think when leaders refuse to acknowledge mistakes of their own, that is, refuse to take ownership or accountability for it, then what we're really modeling is the belief that a leader should never admit a mistake. So if you want to 
rise through the ranks to more senior leadership positions, you better not admit any mistakes either. Don't make them, of course. And then if you do make them, don't admit them. Blame somebody else, deny, dismiss, <laughs> defend something or other, because that's what top leadership looks like. And then we wonder where toxic cultures come from. Right. So that ownership, that trust, that vulnerability, the ability to admit when you were wrong, I think is great. And how did your people respond? They, they were very open to it, you know, and, and it created some dialogues that hadn't been existed prior to that. And it taught me a, a big lesson that you don't always want to be right. And when you are a leader that always has to be right, it's hard to realize. And I realized at that time, what is the cost that I'm causing myself for being right? And mm. uh, it's important to realize that the return on that investment's not very good. Uh, so it's okay. I need to be able to freely admit when I make a mistake, especially as a leader. I love that notion, The what looking at the ROI of being right, of yeah. needing to be right above all things. What is the value? What's the return on that? The investment of energy improving your rightness or righteousness in these spaces, the social currency that you'll get or lose, as the case may be, in those spaces versus you know, allowing somebody else to do that. I heard a speaker talk once, and I cannot remember his name for love or money, but he said, for those out there who always need to be right, that means that anytime you engage in conversation with somebody else and there's any disagreement, the only way you're willing to end the conversation is if the other person walks away the loser. And that was so powerful. It just hit me. Like, do I really want people to associate any disagreement with me as forcing them to walk away as a loser? Yeah. What a horrible thought. You know, that was really a smack in the face as an overall principle. So this is a great example of how not to do exactly that. So thank you for that. Sure. All right. Well, Bill, this takes us to our listener 24-hour influence challenge. And this is an opportunity for you to talk directly to our audience and challenge them to take one step that they can complete within 24 hours to have more influence. How would you like to challenge our listeners today? Thank you for this opportunity. First of all, Laura, my challenge is what is your definition of leadership? Hmm. And I'm not saying what is your definition of, gen of leadership in general? What is your definition of leadership for you. And what is that definition in one sentence? You know, the first time I wrote out my definition of leadership, it was a full page long, which made it very complicated and a definition that there was no way I could live because I was making it so complicated because I didn't want to leave anything out. And what I realized, if I could, could put that into one concise definition of leadership, that will help me. And so, any leader I work with, I challenge this. What is your definition of leadership? Write it down in one sentence or less. Put it on your desk, your bulletin board, your drawer, whatever, and revisit it periodically to see, are you being the leader you want to be? That's my challenge to you. Yes, the beauty of that. Then once you've written it down, ask yourself question number two, am I being that? I love that reflection piece because that's where the power is. Everything sounds great in theory. Then you look at how well you're applying that theory and it's like, oh, maybe there's a little bit something else in there. I think it was Einstein who said, uh, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. Exactly. Yes. Yes. And the thing that is, if, if you six months down the road, you revisit your definition of leadership and you realize I'm not, I'm not living that definition. Okay. So one of two things need to change. You either need to change what you're doing 
or you need to change your definition. That's simple, but yet that isn't that easy, but it's a good, good practice. I think that part B, as far as, okay, what are you going to revise if your behaviors don't match your definition? The easier thing to do, arguably, would be just to change the definition to make it fit. But that's, and I would encourage that if you're truly realizing you didn't express it effectively when you look at the application or, or as clearly as possible or as meaningfully as possible, but not just take the shortcut and just sort of jerry-rig the definition to fit what you're already doing so we don't have to change anything about ourselves. That's the growth part is making it fit and really looking in the mirror. So getting it down to one sentence, and I am going to encourage people to not let it be the world's longest run-on sentence, <laughs> one sentence length that your high school English teacher would have approved, something that will perhaps fit into a Twitter post or something along those lines. Let's keep it short, keep it sweet. It was, um, I'll give a second quote, an attribution on this one. I believe it was Mark Twain who said, I didn't have time to write you a short letter, so I wrote you a long one instead. Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. I love that quote from him. And so just to lead by example, my current definition of leadership is when others follow when they don't have to. Mm. Yes. I love it. I've always said your reputation is what people say about you when you're not in the room. It's long the same line. It's not about that. That's implicitly about the leadership. But yes, will people voluntarily follow? If so, you are leading. Yes. Otherwise, you're just driving. <laughs> exactly. Or worse. <laughs> or worse. Or worse. But uh, no, I love that. Nice and clear. Say it one more time. When others follow when they don't have to. When others follow when they don't have to. Beautiful. And that is a short sentence. So yes. there's a great modeling of short and sweet as well. All right. Well, Bill, tell us about a time when you have been nervous before a presentation or a speaking engagement. What was the most nervous you've ever been? Why? And what communications related lesson did you learn from the experience? Well, I've, I've been nervous for a long time before presentations. I mean, when I was a little kid, I used to hide behind my mother's dress, uh, you know, when, when people would try to come up and talk to me. So, and uh, on the Myers-Briggs, even though most people don't believe it, I always get that I score for being an introvert on the Myers-Briggs assessment. And remember, those Myers-Briggs assessments are not a label. Yes. It's just a tendency. So uh, thank but you I, for that. <laughs> but I, even though I come across very much an extrovert, I am more or less an introvert. And so public speaking didn't come for me, but it's something I aspired to. I loved, even when I was a little kid, hearing Martin Luther King, I didn't mm -hmm. understand or appreciate some of the words he chose, but I just loved listening to him, the rhythm mm. of his voice and the passion of his content. And so that modeling, having models like him and others that I thought were excellent speakers in life helped me get over my nervousness. And I thought it was pretty hokey the first time I ever heard this, but you know, the, the three deep breaths mm. does work. And I think that for me, my work that I do right now has a great deal of meaning to me. And so I ask myself a question. What is more important? Is it more important to deliver the message that I have to deliver or to be comfortable? Hmm. And if the answer is it's more important to deliver the message I have, then I need to gear up 
take some deep breaths, be prepared, and deliver the message I want to deliver. I mean, I, I got so nervous. You know, when you go to a, a meeting and everybody has to introduce themselves mm-hmm. and begin just a, hi, I'm Laura. I have a podcast on leadership. You know, I would get scared to death and be shaking in my boots just to do that. And so by asking myself, is what you're doing important? Is the message you have to convey, is that important? Then, okay, what's more important than you being nervous and copping out or delivering something that people want to hear? So that's a rule I steer myself with. Well, And it's funny, isn't it? How it- you just mentioned the perfect example. We're all grown adults. We are professionals who've been in our roles or industries or et cetera for five, 10, 15, 30 years and longer. And yet all we have to do is go around the room and take 30 seconds to introduce ourselves. And we all go, get all tongue tied and nervous and babbling and tripping all over ourselves. And we sit down and go, what did I just say? What? How did that happen? Which, frankly, to everybody else out there here, peeling back the curtain a little bit, that's part of the reason that the elevator pitch is always question one, because it's a chance for guests, of course, to make it nice and clear, tight and concise uh, and understanding about who they are. So all of you out there know who who we're listening to, who we're speaking with on that particular episode. But at the same time, it's a chance to model some easy easy to understand, easy to remember, even easy to repeat elevator pitches. So you can think to yourselves, okay, that was, I like the way he did that. I, this was really effective how she phrased this and then use that for your own. So it's great opportunity for modeling. So yes, there was a method to the madness, not just to have the guest introduce themselves. So I didn't have to be bothered. <laughs> so always understanding the method to the madness is super valuable. Now, what about a time when, when you needed to inspire others? What did you say? Or how did you say it? How was it received? For me, I feel like that is one of my biggest responsibilities in what I do is inspiring others. And I do that through my teaching, through my speaking, through my writing, and through my podcast. Was there a time in particular where you thought, this is a really big moment. I really got to get through to this audience. Yeah, I think for the work I'm doing in rural health leadership, you know, to get the attention because what I'm doing in rural health leadership didn't exist a few years ago. So I had to sell people on an idea that not many people believed in, and that is creating training programs for rural hospital CEOs. There's a ton of training programs out there for hospital CEOs. None existed for rural hospital CEOs. And we already talked about some of the unique challenges in rural hospitals. So I, I did multiple presentations and speaking, and I shared my personal story. I think it all comes down to sharing stories. And, and who were mo- you speaking to at this point? Who was your audience? I was speaking to the leadership of the National Rural Health Association, okay. which is uh, the largest association in the country when it comes to rural health care. They have about 22,000 members. And I was speaking to the leadership about how important it is to make a difference in healthcare. And I told my personal story of my family, my life growing. I grew up in rural America. There was a little hospital, a rural hospital in our town that saved my little brother's life. It saved my dad's life. It made the end of my mother's life more comfortable. And it gave me my start to healthcare. And just sharing that story in a compelling, compassionate, yet honest way 
a very personal story, I might add. It showed people that I did have that passion. It showed people that it was important, the work that was being done. And I feel like it made the difference to create a whole new enterprise that many people suggested would fail. And I was able to do that. Uh, I've created this <laughs> a very big program, making a big difference in rural health uh, that was simply not that many years ago was an idea in my brain. The, and the actuality is a little bit different than the idea that was in my brain, but I had to be influential. I had to make a difference. And I did that by sharing my true self through passionate storytelling, firsthand storytelling. Which is so much more important. And again, peeling back the curtain. That's why, hi, everybody out there. We're encouraging, I'm asking all of my guests to share their personal stories, not just to levy advice, because that personal storytelling hits home differently, doesn't it? When you're on a stage, whether you're at a microphone, whether you're just in a meeting, whether you're in a business pitch to investors, wherever it is, the personal story, people want to know what's your why. And go to Simon Sinek's uh, famous golden circle bits. When you're just starting with the what, Here's what you have to do. People go, yeah, okay, whatever. That's not inspiring. But when we look at why someone cares, why I should do this, why it matters to you, why are you telling me this? And you share that internal motivation. It changes everything. People connect with that human element of things. They connect with the the story. And it's very human nature. So thank you once again for helping us peel back. Okay, everybody's got to understand all the inner workings of my podcast by the end of this interview. <laughs> but this is the value that we're bringing. So you're doing a, a really terrific job of helping everybody to understand what's in the back of my brains and inner workings as well. But yes, tell your story, tell your story, tell the personal story, the case study, as it were, ideally your own. Finally, in the past, when you've interviewed candidates for a leadership role in your organization, have you ever thought, wow, this person really has it. What was it that impressed you? What was the it factor? How'd you recognize it? Yeah, for me, it's not just one thing. It's really uh, two things, I guess. Passion and culture fit. Hmm. The passion for the purpose, because my, my business enterprises are all passion driven. They're all about leadership and rural health care, uh, which I care very much about. And the organizational culture, you can hire the lead, world's leading expert in whatever, but if they do not fit within your organizational culture, it doesn't matter. They need to embrace the culture. And for me, that's a culture of connection. It's a very much a transformational type of culture. There's so many organizational cultures that are, that are very transactional or a culture of indifference where people are appreciated and valued for what they can do or the tasks they can accomplish. And that'll take you a ways. You can have success with that, but you won't have long lasting success. It's vitally important to have a culture of connection where human beings value other human beings because they are human beings. And so for me, the passion and the organizational cultural fit are the two it factors. It's a compound it factor. A factor, I would say. Yes, not a compound fracture. His compound yes. is factor. <laughs> get that one straight. But I, honestly, Bill, that goes right back to what you were saying earlier as far as your definition of leadership. Like, Do yeah. people follow you 
even when they don't have to. And that's, I think, the difference. If they feel valued, they feel like they matter as people for their ideas and their hearts and their families and everything that comes in with it, not just what you're mechanically able to execute as a task. And that's the difference between, I always said, whether people are working for you because and they're just punching a clock and cashing a check versus they're following with their heart and their soul. And when you've got people who are in it with their hearts and their souls, it's a totally different experience, a totally different world and, and workplace to be part of. So great additional questions for people to ask themselves. Uh, now, I, much as I hate to say this, I think our, we're just about out of time here. So my last question for you, Bill, is what's something fun that you do with your group? to get a little bit more fun in your organization? We get together for lunch once a month in person because there's so much we do that we're not together in person. And anytime we can connect in person, that helps build that connection culture. And we always have to share a story that no one else at the table knows. And so I, I have rehashed that Charles Barkley yogurt story <laughs> in that circumstance. But, you know, it's important to truly connect, to not necessarily talk about work, just to talk about life and what's going on there. So there's a moratorium at that point, no work talk during that lunch? Yes, yes. Nice. I think we do need that human connection that goes right back to your culture of connection and are you valued as a human being yes. as well. So we have a lot of threads going through the various answers today, which I absolutely love. Uh, Bill, is there, how can people learn more about you and your rural health, the Center for Rural Health Leadership? Sure. Uh, the Center for Rural Health Leadership, our website is crhleadership.com for Center for Rural Health Leadership. Or you can always check out my website. It's just my name, Bill Oxier, B-I-L-L-A-U-X-I-E-R.com. And of course, we will put all that in the show notes. So if you're driving or doing something else, do not try to take notes with your two thumbs as you go. It's all there for regular reference. This has really been wonderful. Bill, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks, Laura. Been a pleasure being here. And to everybody else out there, thank you as always for tuning in. To listen, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your platform of choice. We can help even more people to increase their confidence, presence, and influence. And finally, if you want to download my free guide to equipment recommendations for virtual influence, including my picks for microphones, lights, and more, go to speakingtoinfluence.com. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, and you're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Laura Sokola, and I want to sincerely thank you for listening to the Speaking to Influence podcast. If you love listening to these episodes as much as I love bringing them to you, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please go to iTunes right now to rate and review our podcast in order to help us expand our reach so even more people can master the three C's to command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal. Thanks for listening to Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite, the show for leaders who want to speak with impact. The hosts, producers, owners, and media distributors of the show make no guarantees that the strategies and information discussed will result in profit or other success and may result in losses. The opinions and statements of the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the owners, staff, managers, broadcasters, or sponsors of the show. No medical or psychological therapy or personal or professional wellness or relationship advice is offered in the show. You are advised to seek counsel on matters related to your health, family, relationships, 
job or other business and legal matters from licensed advisors in those areas prior to making any changes in business or lifestyle. No information provided may be suitable in your situation. As always, take responsibility for the decisions and actions you take, including the reactions they may make in your work, family, health, and life.